Um, hey, we have a guest speaker this morning that I'm really, really excited about. So Joel Gerlach, um, why don't you come up, Joel? As he's coming up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag about you. But Joel, Joel's in charge of our... Uh, Joel's in charge of our prayer team. Um, Joel and Kat have just been a huge, huge part of our church for, for several years now. And uh, just a really good friend and, there. thank you, and a good neighbor. Because <laughs> uh, we get to be neighbors too. But listen, um, I can say a lot about Joel. One of the things is when he was in L.A., he, he got to do a lot of special effects on some of the Marvel movies. And, you know, like Captain America and Iron Man and all, some of those movies. Which makes him a huge celebrity in my house, by the way, with my kids. Because my kids think he's amazing. That's but awesome. I bring that up just to say that, Joel, you're so much more than that. Oh, like, those are your, you know, those are some cool things that you've done. But that is not the reason why you're up, up here and the reason why you're just a trusted person in our church. You are a great dad. You're a great husband. Um, you love Jesus in the industry that you're in. And you're always just bringing Jesus to people wherever you are. And you're a student of the word. And also, you've taught me so much about prayer this last year. I can't even... I can't even, t- uh, I, get, I get a little teary thinking about just how that's affected my life. So I know, anyways, it's, it's an honor for us to have Joel speak to us this morning. Will you just give him a hand as he shares with us? Thank you. Thanks. Love you, man. Wow. Whew. Wow, with a starting like that, where do I go from here? <clears throat> so one of the things I think is really cool about the sermon series that we're in, uh, that we've been doing so far in 2020, is just that I, this idea that we need the whole story right? We need the big picture in order to be able to understand where we are. Um, there's a great illustration that, that um, exemplifies this idea of needing the whole story. Uh, and it's in an article that I read recently. Uh, and basically there is this, uh, these NASA psychologists did these studies on astronauts, basically trying to understand how they think, how, how their thought processes, and even how their brain chemistry changed from when they came back from space. And so these NASA psychologists coined this phrase called the overview effect. And the overview effect is is basically what happens when an astronaut goes up into space and they look out the window and they see the Earth for the first time. They see this big blue marble. What it does is it changes them. It literally, they are never the same coming back. The way that they see politics, the way they see relationships with other people, the way they see environmental science and the economy, it changes because they see everybody in the entire world on this tiny little planet in the great expanse of the cosmos. And when they come back, how they talk about people and how they talk about things changes the way that, that has changed the way that they've seen it. And then it changes us, right, as we see from their perspective. So what we're talking about in this sermon series is the overview effect of different things in the Bible. When we see these big picture things for the first time, our goal is to see them, comprehend them, and then walk away changed so that we don't come back with the same perspective anymore. And we're able to identify where we are in the context of the great story going on. So today what we're talking about is our overview effect is what happens when two worlds collide, right? When two distinct places collide. We've seen it in movies, right? In the first Avengers movie, which I worked on. Not, that's not a plug in anything. But uh, <clears throat> when, when Thor and Loki come and they meet Iron Man. That's Asgard meeting Earth, right? It's two completely different places combining. For me, a personal story, I worked at a summer camp in Maryland, and it was this little microcosm in this summer camp, but then my parents and my brothers and sisters and a few friends drove up from Tennessee to Maryland to visit me. 
I still don't know why. And, uh, and it was like, what are you guys doing here? This is an entirely different world that is colliding today. So what we're talking about, our two entirely different worlds are heaven and earth and what it means when heaven and earth collide. So in the Bible, heaven and earth basically boil down to two things. We've got heaven, which is also God's space. So everything related to God's space exists in God's space. And then we have human space. This is everything that relates to humanity, humankind, the physical world we live in exists here in this little circle. By the way, not a big drawing person. I had two people help me draw these circles, so... Fortunately, I'm not doing an art class today. Um, but human space is basically where everything that we know, and, and it's, it's relatively easy for us to identify and understand human space, right? We have mountains and trees and cats and dogs and people and buildings and all that stuff. We can picture when we think about, kind of like you saw on the screen, the world. But God's space is very different, and it's very hard for us to picture what is even in this. How big is it? What happens here? What are the creatures inside it? In fact, the Bible attempts to try to explain to us what's in God's space, but the authors, as they're talking about these dreams and these visions, words literally fail them. If you've ever read some of those prophecies in the book of Revelation, you're like, what is going on? This sounds crazy. And that's because we are stuck inside of here, and we can't possibly imagine what happens here. But where the Bible gets super interesting is when it talks about the overlap between these two worlds. And that's what we're going to be diving in today as soon as I go back to my notes and check that I'm on track. Oh good, I'm on track. That's awesome. One of the things that we think about when we think of heaven, I probably should move my notes a little over here so I'm not walking back and forth so far. Thank you, Diane, for laughing and all of that. Um, <clears throat> When we, think about, when we think about heaven and earth, and we, we picture ourselves in the context of heaven, what we think of is when we die, right, we turn into an angel ghost with wings and we float over here to God's space and we end up in heaven, right? Well, what's interesting is that the Bible is not concerned whatsoever about that. In fact, that's a little tiny bit in the Bible. What, God, what, what the Bible is most concerned about is these two spaces and their connections to each other and what happened. We know that once upon a time, these two worlds were together. They overlapped. There was no distinction. And then throughout the course of history, God's space and heaven, heaven space and human space were separated, right? And then God is doing something over the course of millenniums to bring them back together again. So we're going to take a deep dive into that. But first, let's pray. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to just be here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me. Lord, I'm so excited about this stuff. I'm so passionate about, about the story and what it means for us. Lord, help me be a good and effective communicator this morning. Um, God, everything that we have is yours. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. All right, so let's go back to the beginning, right? We need to, we need to start, right, at the, at the very beginning. So, so we hear about paradise, right? And paradise, as depicted in the Garden of Eden, is where there is no distinction between these two. If I could, I would take these two circles and I'd overlap them, right? So one is directly on top of the other. God is with man, man is with God. And in fact, God is partnering with man to create some incredible and amazing things, right? We hear about this testament of what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden before the fall, and it's incredible. But of course, what happens? Well, humanity rebels, right? And then from the fall onwards, we see something interesting happen in the Bible. Now we talk about two distinct places, right? We talk about heaven, God's space, and we talk about earth, 
human space. And from that point on, throughout the Bible, all the way up until literally the last couple chapters in Revelation, these two places are entirely distinct from one another. So when we talk about heaven, right, and our concepts of it, the Bible has, this is a non-existent list you'll see up on the screen, but, but the Bible talks about a couple different ways to describe heaven. The first is the kingdom of God, right? So we know that this is God's kingdom, or also the kingdom of heaven, Jesus preached a lot about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about God's space. We know that that is where the throne of God is, right? It says the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool, right? So we see these description of where God sits. Um, We know that in heaven there is eternal life. And why is there eternal life? Well, because there's no death, right? You can't possibly have eternal life and death in the same place. So we know that here there is life everlasting. Nothing ever dies And finally, we know that it's the unveiled presence of God exists in God's space. The unveiled presence being God does not have to hide or reduce himself when he's in God's space. In heaven, it is the fullness and the completeness of God. So then we've got earth, right? How does the Bible describe the earth? Well, it says it's the world, right? That's pretty easy. We know this is the world. Um, It's the present age, right? The age that we're living in right now is the present age in which there is this separation, there's the age of sin and death, right? When we look at the news, we pretty, it's pretty obvious we're living in the age of sin and death, right? Um, and then it's, it's a place where there's hardened hearts, right? Hardened hearts exist inside of human space because we have rebelled against God. So going back to the beginning, now we, after the fall, we have two distinct places. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we begin to see a picture of what's going on over inside of human space, Within just a couple of chapters, without much happening whatsoever, all of a sudden we now have murder. We have idolatry. We have covetousness. We have people killing other people for stuff, right? Within really not that long a time, human space begins to get absolutely crowded and smeared with sin, right? It's not a... It's not a uh, it's not really a surprise to us that this happens. But God's space, on contrary, is completely clean. God's space hasn't changed one bit because God is eternal, right? Sin cannot enter into God's space because God's holiness prevents it. Sin requires brokenness and God is not broken, right? So therefore, sin cannot enter into God's space. Um, so then we, we know in what scripture teaches us that with, with God's space being full of his presence, full of his joy, full of all these things, we see that God's space and human space can't connect. There is a distinct, in fact, they're not even in contrast to each other. They're diametrically opposed to one another. So we kind of get in other religions, we get this idea of yin and yang, right? It's almost like you need one side to create the other side, and both of them exist in a balance. Guys, this is not yin and yang. We also know there might be a thing called the circle of life, right? In order for the tree to grow, first the seed must die, and the death creates the nutrients for life to then grow. This is not that. This is not that whatsoever. God's space and human space is basically saying in God's space, we have eternal life. And in human space, we have final death. You cannot have a place where life and death are able to coexist together in finality, right? One of them is going to have to prevail, right? Does that make sense? One of them is going to have to prevail. 
So unless God did something, there would be no middle ground. There would be no way for God's space and human space to reconnect again. So that's when God decided it's time to bridge the gap. The first iteration of this contact point between the worlds where God's space and human space were going to touch was called the tabernacle. So in in Exodus, we know that God chooses a people, right? We know that he leads them outside of Israel. He gives them his presence, a fire by day and a a cloud by day and a fire by night, Um, manifesting his presence. And then he says, you know what? I want to meet face to face with your leaders. So then God begins to describe over the course of many chapters, and actually it's a really interesting read if you look at it, God is really passionate about this connection point. And it makes sense. You've got the majesty of God's space and all that he created in human space, and he's going to create a place where these two places touch, where they overlap. So it makes sense that God would care a lot about that place. He would care about what it looks like, how to behave around it, who should go inside of it and who shouldn't, because it's a holy place, right? So in Exodus 31, 1 through 6, you're going to see it up here on the screen as I read it. We're, we're seeing a description of the tabernacle come out. And here's what's so cool is that God just doesn't build it and plop it onto the earth. He partners with humanity in doing it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you to create the tabernacle of meeting according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. God was passionate about this and he wanted to create something magnificent and he did. But then it gets better. God one-ups himself. 440 years later, with God continuing to direct with the same level of meticulous detail, Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle, in contrast, was meant to be dismantled, right? It was a big tent with all kinds of walls and fences and stuff around it, but it was meant to move with the people as they traveled, right, until they reached the promised land. God still wanted a place of meeting. But finally, and 440 years later, longer than America has been around, God says, now is time to create a permanent home. So then the temple was built, and it was magnificent. Both of these buildings, as they're described in the Bible, were decorated with images of fruit trees. They were decorated with flowers, carvings, and statues of angels. They were made with pure gold, raw wood, and precious jewels. They were designed intentionally to make you feel like you were back in a place, a specific place where God's space and human space combined. It was made to bring you back to the garden, right? In the garden of Eden, when God walked among man, how he created the temple and how he created the tabernacle was meant to evoke that sort of imagery. So as you walked in, you felt like you were back. You were back in a place where humanity was supposed to be when God's space and human space were one. 
So then listen to how the Bible describes the dedication of the temple. Listen to what happens and what is said about when God's space now finally touches. This is in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 21. It goes like this. When the priest came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priest could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. I mean, imagine this. I'm sitting here talking to you guys, and all of a sudden, the presence of God shows up, and nobody could do anything. It's that level of power of God's space coming in to touch human space. Okay, then it continues on. Then Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. Then the king turned around to the entire community of Israel standing before him and gave this blessing. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept the promise he made to my father, David. For I have become king in my father's place, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. I have built this temple to honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and I have prepared a place there for the ark, which contains the covenant that the Lord has made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. And the dedication goes on. Honestly, guys, if you want to see a really cool show, read the dedication of the temple. It is super awesome. And there's so much meaning packed into it that I don't have time to describe today. But where it ends is here in 2 Chronicles 7.1. When Solomon had made the end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. Guys, this is super rad. You know why? Because the connection was made right here. We have a point where God's space and human space touched. And the power and the presence and the majesty of God's space was present in human space. And fire and cloud and all kinds of stuff came down. And then, you know what's so cool? When that connection point was made, what did Israel do? They partied. They literally had celebration after celebration, feasts and dancings and dedications. And guys, when it says the entire community of Israel, they literally mean everybody. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people surrounding the area of Jerusalem doing nothing but celebrating for 21 days, they partied. And then they all lived happily ever after, the end. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <clears throat> No, that's not the end, right? Because what happened, right? Even with the very presence of God connecting with humanity, sin kept getting in the way. The celebrations didn't last. The Israelites continued to rebel. So God needed another solution, right? Well, it's not another solution. This is a continuation, right? This is a continuation of everything that he was doing. It wasn't just that point where God's space and human space connected. What God's space, what, what God really needed was to clear this area here, to create a place of overlap. And so what did he do? Well, he came to his people and he said, guys, I want you to pray. And then they did. And then he said, I want you to read your Bibles. And then they did. And that was it. Sin was gone. Dan just shrugs, but the rest of you guys are like, really? No, no, that's not absolutely not what happened. Uh, that's really cool. Um, actually, what God said was to sacrifice animals. Um, and the, 
when we think about sacrificing animals in today's context, I mean, imagine, right? Imagine if you guys were to walk in this front door and we had to kill a couple things before you came in here, right? Dang, I was like, ooh, you know? In our modern context, we look at animal sacrifice and we think of it as pagan. We think of it as something that belongs in the Old Testament, um, something that is so outside of anything that we would do in today's modern culture that sometimes we miss actually the connection or the reason why animal sacrifice was even a part of the conversation in the Bible, right? It wasn't like animal sacrifice was something that God set up only to be like, yeah, I got a better idea and he changed it. No, God is setting the example and he's setting a way for his people to be purified from their sin, okay? So um, uh, animal sacrifice, what was it? It was a deeply symbolic ritual. It, it, the blood of an animal, it represented life, like its lifeblood was coursing through it. Then when the animal was killed, the blood was drained from the animal it reminded worshipers of death. The fact that this animal is never gonna come back to life again was representing the fact of that, that ultimate death that sin created. God actually, when he describes animal sacrifice, he goes on for a while talking about it and talking about how important it is. There's a key passage here in Leviticus 17.11 that I wanna read to you guys. It goes like this. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So let's talk about that word atonement, right? In today's context, the dictionary describes it as a means to pay a price to settle a debt you owe, right? So atonement is the way to settle a debt. But because this is uh, Sunday and we like to you look into old, uh, outdated languages to talk about things. Um, the, in the original Hebrew, what atonement means is to cover over, like with a pitch or paint or tar, right? You've got a blemish on something and you literally cover over it, right, to make it clean and pure again. But here's what I think is super interesting. The word atonement that we get today in our, in our modern context, it comes from medieval Latin. And it's two words, adunamentum, which means unity, and ownment, or to unite. I think that's super fascinating. You've got this idea that we have this Hebrew word for to cover over, right? And to, to, to clean and repair. And then you've got this Latin word to unite. And it's God creating a way for us to cover over, not hide as in it's still down there, but literally to clean away our sin so that we can be reunited with God. Unlike, oh, and then the other thing is interesting is the Hebrew word for atonement shows up 44 times in Leviticus alone, right? Atonement is a really big deal for God, and he talks about it a lot. And so therefore, we need to pay attention to why it's around. So unlike other deities, atonement wasn't about appeasing an angry God, right? God wasn't saying, kill some stuff on my behalf and then I'll be happy. No, he was creating a pathway for his people to re-encounter God's space again after the fall, after the separation. Rebellion and sin required death, a separation from God's space forever. That was the penalty of all of us deciding that we are better off without God. So it's not to be taken lightly. But in his love, when God created that way for sin to be covered by the blood of the animal, God is saying, in order for you to be reconnected, something has to die. Something has to pay that price. Basically, what happened is when I, when I sacrificed an animal, right, me as an Israelite, I was passing on my shame, my sin, my guilt, and my death duty onto the animal, and that animal died in my place, 
right? And then God said, now our pre- we can be re- reunited. So when sin was removed, right? So when, when the animal was sacrificed and sin was, was uh, removed away, basically, oh, I love this that I can do this on this side and not mess up my circle. So nice. Okay, here we go. Basically, now what happens is we have a clean space. All of a sudden, with animal sacrifice, we have a spot for the holiness and the set-apartness of God's space to come into human space where now we can exist, right? So why aren't we sacrificing animals today if that's how it worked? Because animal sacrifices were not enough. Which brings us into the continuation of God's millenniums-long solution to get to this point. There were several drawbacks to, well, more than several. There were a lot of drawbacks to animal sacrificing. Uh, The first is that you had to be an Israelite in Jerusalem in order to purify yourself at the temple, right? For people like us, that would be really hard today if we had to fly to Jerusalem uh, in order to become clean again. Um, Another thing is that it required many repeated animal sacrifices depending on the sin, and that got expensive, right? If you were having to pay for um, the doves and the calves and the bulls and all that stuff that that needed to die in your place, that would be really hard toll on you. Um, The other thing is that the Holy of Holies was only for priests. So again, thinking about that connection point where God's space and human space combined right there was called the Holy of Holies. And what's crazy is that you could only, as a priest, as the high priest, you could only go into the Holy of Holies once per year on Yom Kippur, And even then, if you didn't do everything that you needed to clean yourself to become perfect and holy to enter into God's space, you could die. In fact, they would tie ropes around these guys so that if this guy died as he went into the presence of God, they could pull him out without sending other people who would die to go in there. That's crazy, right? But that's how holy God's space was and how powerful that connection spot was between these two dimensions. So the other, the biggest problem out of all of this is that everybody had a tendency to go and sin again, right? The ugliness of human space rushed right back in again and again and again. So no amount of animal blood could wash the Israelites or us completely clean. No death price could fully cover the multitude of their sins, especially as Israel continued to actively rebel against God. Guys, it got so bad. God's chosen people, his holy nation, came, became the poster child for murder, for corruption, for idolatry, all of these things that even other nations were like, whoa, you guys, you got to tone it down a little bit, which is crazy. These are supposed to be God's people. So... What happened? Well, Jesus happened. Thank God, right? We all know Jesus came. It's old news for us because we're familiar with it, right? But this event, this what happened here is packed with meaning. So think about it. How could Jesus enter human space? God's space and human space cannot connect together. They're diametrically opposed. So in order for Jesus to get over here, something had to change, right? Otherwise, this whole space would be decimated and destroyed. Jesus had to let go of that which made him a part of God's space in order to come here. And we know that Jesus came from God's space because John, the Gospel of John, um, in the first chapter, the first verse, it literally says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything about Jesus was 100% God's space, and he had to come to human space right? So 
when Jesus gave up that thing to become as a, as a baby, as an ambassador to us, he basically let go of all of this stuff, came into human space, and he grew up in the confines, the context, the death, decay, the destruction, everything that was running rampant in human space, Jesus willfully grew up inside of. Then it gets deeper. And guys, this is one of the pivotal moments. So if you're falling asleep, pay attention here. John 1.14, just a little bit later after he talks about the word, right, being a part of God, says here, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Guys, the key word here is dwelling right? Dwelling is the most important word. And John was writing something very specific for us to pay attention to. Again, because this is, uh, this is church and we like to talk about ancient languages, dwelling, that word dwelling, it comes from the Greek word eskenosin. I don't know if I pronounced that right because I don't speak ancient Greek. Um, but that word right there is one of the key and pivotal words because what does this word mean? It means to pitch or to live in a tent. It's not interesting why that, right? It's not like he could have used any other language when he's talking about Jesus coming here. Why would he talk about Jesus coming up to set coming here to set a tent? And the reason why if we convert this to the Hebrew word, it's to tabernacle. Right? The word became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. What is so powerful about that? I'm getting chills right now as I talk about this because Jesus was this he became flesh so that he could be the tabernacle, the point of contact between God's space and human space. So we're going to rewrite John 1.14 with this context. I want to kind of just, I'm not changing the Bible. I'm just using the same terminology that I've used in my sermon to give it to you in context here. So this is John 1.14, Joel version, uh, Bible coming shortly. You can get it in the back. Um, Jesus became flesh, leaving God's space. So he could enter into human space and become our tabernacle, the point where heaven touches earth. Just like the glory that consumed the sacrifices in Solomon's temple. Remember that fire that touched down and burned all that stuff away. We, his disciples, have seen that same glory, the same power, the glory of the one and only son who has clearly come from God's space as evident in his works. Guys, Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple, far more splendid and far more effective than Solomon's temple. And I think this is so great, this idea that Jesus is a better temple than the temple, right? Solomon's temple couldn't talk, it couldn't heal, it couldn't go from place to place. It was only a building, it was prone to being mishandled by its priests and taken over by invading armies. But Jesus was a better intersection of God's space and human space. Why? Because he brought God's space wherever he went. And when he did, what he started to do was he started to create little pockets of heaven, little places where God's space was coming into the chaos, the death, the destruction of human space. All of a sudden, where once there was only death and decay, we're now seeing heaven. Jesus said, Pay attention, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he was right. God's space was on a full-scale invasion of human space. In fact, Jesus even told his followers to pray this way, your God's space come and your will be done as it is in human space, right? That's basically what he said. And I think that that's incredible. So because of this, people felt threatened. They didn't want God's space, right? They didn't want Jesus as their king. 
So what did they do? They killed him, right? They killed him. Some people believe that this was the end of God's space, that these pockets of heaven disappeared and won't come back until Jesus returns. But guys, they're wrong. Jesus' plan, God's plan, all this stuff didn't end with his death, his resurrection, and when he left. John the Baptist, he shouts out in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Guys, the sin of the world, the sin of human space, right? It wasn't just this one thing. His goal was to take away all of that stuff. And even more so, we see here that, that John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. He willingly came not just as our temple, not just as our tabernacle, but as the temple sacrifice. He is God's lamb, God's animal sacrifice for the entirety of the world. Let's go back to that Leviticus chapter in 1711, for it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. God isn't just talking about the Israelites when he writes this. He's pointing ahead to Jesus. Again, let's modify this, this verse. Um, yeah, here, Leviticus 17.11, this, this is Joel's edition. For the life of my only son is in his blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is his precious blood that makes atonement for your life. Guys, every single precious drop of blood Every single bit of Jesus' blood. <laughs> I cried when I practiced it last night, and I'm crying now. Every single drop of Jesus' blood took away the dark stain of sin. Just like the animal took my sins and died in my place, Jesus took my sins, and he died in my place, but he made it so that I don't have to sacrifice another animal. And guys, this is the key. If you pay attention to anything, pay attention to this. Jesus created that room for God's space to fill us. It allows us to enter God's space once and for all. And now, guys, now we carry heaven with us. Because when Jesus created this space once and for all, for all of our sins, no matter whether we are good or bad, he created this clear space where God's space and human space combine in our hearts through the power of his blood, the sacrifice of his spirit, or it's the power of his blood and through the power of the spirit. We now carry heaven with us. We have become pockets of God's space everywhere. When I asked you, what does it look like when two spaces collide? It looks like this. It literally looks like all of us gathered here this morning. What we're doing right now is we're bringing heaven to earth. Each one of you now are God's temple, his tabernacle, you are walking around with the same power and presence that Jesus had when he, when he was here on this earth. What that means is that you're bringing heaven to your work. It means that you're bringing heaven to your kids. It means that you're bringing heaven to your marriage. It means that you're bringing heaven every time you walk in your front door. It means that you're bringing heaven when you go to school. It means you're bringing heaven when you write on social media. It means you're bringing heaven when you call your mom on the phone. It means you're bringing heaven whenever you go out to, to eat at a restaurant. You are now these places in human space where Jesus is invading, saying his kingdom come. That's us. 
The Bible is clear in that the focus of everything wasn't that we would get plucked out of human space to, on a one-way ticket to God's space. The whole emphasis of the Bible is that Jesus is doing so much to create a place where these two worlds overlap, right? Once and for all. And when Jesus comes back to claim his throne and there's no longer a separation between God's space and human space anymore, guys, it's gonna be glorious. And the best part is he's gonna say, good job, you guys. You were heaven on earth. All right, band, you guys can come up. <laughs> so prayer ministry, I want to just real quick plug this. This is what prayer ministry is all about. Sometimes prayer ministry seems like it's this really spooky thing where we're just like talking to God and he's talking to us and maybe we're right, maybe we're not. But really, it's, it's literally just this. When we think about something that we need prayer for in our lives, our bodies are sick, we need help financially, something's going wrong in a relationship, whatever it is. When we pray, we're literally just praying, hey, God's space that's in the future and it's going to come, come right now into the now. And we create through prayer a connection point right there. We create that presence where these two different worlds are touching. So this Saturday, from 1030 to 1 or whatever it is, 10 to 1230, we're having an opportunity where we just practice this stuff and we just invite God's space to come. And I would encourage all of you who are willing to come try it, right? What's the worst that could happen to you is a couple hours on a Saturday. But the most amazing thing is that moment when God's space comes and, and you hear the voice of God and it empowers you and encourages you. Guys, it changes you. It changes you. Speaking of things that changes you, we're going to head now into a time of communion. Um, we're going to dim the lights. Everybody's going to get ready. We have communion on each side. And this, the act of communion is literally the act of creating that connection point between God's space and human space where Jesus says, this is my body and my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, right? What we're doing is remembering of what he did so that now we can be heaven on earth, right? So as you take that, just have that conversation with God this morning to say, hey, thank you, God. Equip me this week in the midst of all the chaos and everything that I have going on, all of this stuff that's happening in our world. God, will you allow me to be a good heaven space, right? So that other people will see me and they'll see everything that you've done.